Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we're well into 2023 now. It's it's no longer the new year. It's it's just the current year. <laughs> how's, how's your week been treating you? It's been busy, Josh. Um, you know, the trade market is still kind of cold, with the exception of one or two here and there that we're a couple we're going to talk about, but... Um, and I think we can talk a little bit about why that is, um, but it's been sort of hit and miss, right? You know, nothing happens and then something happens and nothing for a while. So it's been um, not as busy on that front, but we have a lot of other things to talk about. Yeah, I did kind of want to talk about that at, at some point in this episode. So maybe briefly now we can just, it's been a quiet trade off season. You know, there's there's the big one that we're going to talk about today. There was the Varsho Moreno trade. There was Sean Murphy. There's probably one substantial trade that I'm really missing. But other than that, it's been kind of you know just a bunch of odds and ends. A couple like oh here's a here's a one year veteran who's going to be a, a kind of a starter level like starting caliber player, but not a superstar, and he's going to this new team and not a ton of activity. It's been a crazy free agent market, but and that's why. And I don't. I have my own personal theories about this stuff. So, because you know, first of all, there's a lot of te- so the landscape is more stable, right? Because of CBA and and everyone's sort of like you know people came back to the stands, so they can plan ahead. They most of the teams know kind of okay, what's our kind of revenue going to be? Therefore, what should our payroll be? Um, so there's stability, and then there's the new CBA, which said okay, now we know what we're talking about. And then there are all these free agents. So if you're a team that wants to upgrade your roster. You got more revenue, more um, budget, solid budget projections from your owner, right? And so then you say, okay, well we have this money to play with, and there's all these good free agents, so let's let's go at it. And so every team go went at it. The other thing is with the new playoff structure, as we've talked about before, a lot of teams are like, maybe we have a shot. The Cubs, maybe we have a shot. <laughs> um, so like there's and a few others in addition to the obvious players. There's not that many, you know, sellers against buyers, right, in the trade market. So most of the uh, contenders and wannabe contenders were active in the trade market because they had budget from their owner to play with, and they upgraded all their rosters that way. And so now they're almost done, and they're like, okay, what are we? What's left to do? And meanwhile, there's only a couple of teams that have been tanking. You know, the A's, Nationals, Pirates. You know, the Orioles aren't tanking anymore. They're going for it. So like. There's not a whole lot of inventory in the trade market is what I'm trying to say. There was all the inventory for upgrades on the free agent market and the budget to work with. There's not a lot of inventory in the trade market, which is also why it's cold. And I would add one last thing, which is there's a lot of prospect hugging, you know, outside of the Moreno deal. Um, there hasn't, you know, nobody wants to move big prospects. You know, they'll move middle and lower tier ones, but, you know, there's not too much appetite for them either. So there's a kind of a supply and demand kind of um, you know, freeze going on there where nobody wants to move their top ones. And so, like, Ryan Reynolds hasn't moved because no one wants to, because he requires top prospects and no one wants to move them. So we're stuck. That's my take. Yeah. In a weird way, we're, we're obviously dealing with a smaller sample size this offseason. Like, like we said, there's only been like three significant, significant trades. Um, but in a weird way, it almost looks like teams are more willing to part with young major leaguers than prospects at this point, right? The headliner of the Sean Murphy trade was Wilson or William Contreras. Yes, William. (laughs) And 
he's an established big leaguer, a young established big leaguer, but he's he's not a top prospect with all the promise in the world and his career could go any direction. It's He's kind of a guy where you kind of know what he is and maybe he's got some room to grow, but you at least have a good idea of what he is. And same sort of deal with Gabriel Moreno in the uh, Dalton Varsho trade. And then uh, the trade we're going to talk about today, it's not quite the same, but both of those deals we saw not necessarily an established big leaguer going as the main return, but a young one who's kind of already shown a bit of who they are and they're kind of more of a finished product rather than a Jason Dominguez changing hands and, and mm-hmm. he could be total boomer bust type. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one point you mentioned that there aren't too many teams tanking. There aren't, and the ones that are tanking, they really sold out quick. And I don't know if it's just a coincidence or if it had something to do with the lockout and with 2020 season and and how revenues got all out of whack and everything but we saw the a's sell pretty much everyone last off season in Mm -hmm. in pretty quick succession and and that's not very typical for them we the last time we saw the a's sell was after the 2014 season and they did a whole bunch that off season trading josh donaldson brandon moss jeff samarja everyone Mm -hmm. um but they still had some pieces left. They still hung on to Sonny Gray and Scott Kazmier and Josh Reddick. And, and they added pieces like Chris Davis and Rich Hill. And, and they ended up shuffling those guys over the next couple of years. And so every deadline, every offseason, there was a player on the A's that teams were interested in trading for. But that hasn't quite happened with most of the sellers. It, it seemed like the Nationals sold off pretty quick. You know, they had their yeah. big three guys. They had Scherzer Turner that they had to get rid of because... They were closer to free agency and then Soto that they decided to pull the trigger on last deadline. Mm. And now they're kind of out of players that anybody would really be that interested in. Similar deal with the Reds. They don't really have anyone that teams are calling about at this point now that they've traded Castillo and Maley and the Mm -hmm. A's are Mm -hmm. teams are interested in Loriano, but it doesn't seem like the A's want to move him because he was so bad last year and his value is at an all time low. Yeah. and now it's just like table scraps, right? <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And looking at the rest of the teams at the bottom of the standings, it's the Rockies who are the Rockies. So they're mm-hmm. not gonna <laughs> they're not doing anything over there. The Pirates who are hanging tight onto Brian Reynolds not budging on their asking price. And then I guess you could lump the Tigers in there, but we've talked about them pretty extensively about how they're in kind of a weird spot. And so And they've traded I, their only surplus of any note were the the two relievers they already traded, right? <laughs> like there's not much exactly. left. So, yeah. Unless they are shipping off a, a Torkelson or, or somebody like that, they're giving up on this early into their career, and that's not really the spot that they're at right now. Right. So I think I think maybe we should have seen this coming, and maybe we did. I think we might have talked about it previously, how there just weren't that many compelling trade candidates this offseason. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see things drastically change at the deadline and next offseason. Just looking at this list of teams and, and the standings from last year and kind of which arrow I picture these teams future projections pointing in, you know, I could see the Brewers falling off. I could see the Red Sox and the, the White Sox, especially I could see them having a disappointing year and starting to sell off some of that core. And those guys would be very attractive to teams. Uh, Even the Marlins to an extent, the Cubs are kind of doing a weird thing. And yeah, there's, there's at least a handful of teams here that I could see their arrow flipping from, you know, yeah, yeah. Where, where this offseason, they've been kind of reserved, cautious buyers. I could see that pretty quickly flipping to sellers in the next six-ish months. Exactly. So they 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 enter this offseason with, eh, let's give it a shot. <laughs> you know, there's a couple of teams saying that. The Cubs, the Angels, a couple others, to your point. 
And they're not all going to make it, right? They're not going to all be in contention at the deadline. So like, okay, we gave it a shot. Okay, <laughs> we're open for business. I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and, and obviously at the deadline, there usually aren't any free agents to be had. You know, there's, there's the occasional, oh, this guy got cut loose and now we can have him for the big league minimum. Or, oh, this guy was rehabbing and so he didn't sign a deal and now he's available after a couple months into the season when he's healthy or whatever the case is there might be one or two of those guys but yeah like we've mentioned before when you're at the deadline the only real way to add talent to your team is to make a trade and that's kind of why we see some bigger pieces change hands there and teams more willing to part with prospects at the deadline yeah you know the reliever market just focusing on that for a second has been a little surprising to me like guys like Andrew Chafin are still out there Michael Fulmer still out there which is maybe why some of the trade candidates like a Scott Barlow from the Royals hasn't moved yet. Um, you would think so. He's only two years away from free agency, and I don't think they're winning anything in the next two years, so you would think he'd be available. But I imagine that they're still kind of negotiating with some of the free agent relievers as well. So I know we're getting to the point of the offseason where, like, the big names are gone in free agency. You know, so, you know, people are poking around the Seth Browns. <laughs> is it like there's like, okay, who else can we – kind of get to upgrade you know that's kind of where we're at yeah and obviously relievers are always very very highly sought after at the deadline people are always going to get hurt and underperform in bullpens and so if you're not getting a deal you love in the off season it, it's it's one position where we, we pretty typically will see them moved at the deadline and, and maybe it's not too surprising if a guy like Barlow or a guy like David Bednar or even Alexis Diaz out in Cincinnati, who's kind of a rising name. If guys like that were moved at the deadline, that wouldn't be a surprise at all. Well, all right. Um, let's start jumping into the moves that actually have happened. Um, one of which is, uh, <laughs> let's start with the, the big obvious one here. Yeah. So this trade or at least a similar trade to this with this framework has been swirling in the rumor mill for a while now. Um, and then it finally happened and it didn't quite look the way we expected it to. So the twins and the Marlins lined up on a trade. Uh, the twins acquired right-handed pitcher Pablo Lopez at who we had at 38.8 million in median trade value. They also added infield prospect Jose Salas at 20.5 and outfield prospect Byron Chorio, who wasn't in the system at the time, but we added him in at 0.1. And in exchange, they sent the Miami Marlins utility man Luis Arias at 26.6, and that was it. <laughs> so pretty significant gap there. This one was rejected by the model as an overpay by the Marlins. And I think both John and I have been spending the last... Uh, however many hours this has been <laughs> the last couple of days trying to wrap our heads around this and come to a conclusion on what exactly happened here. Were we wrong? Was, were the Marlins just acting irrationally? Was it a true overpay? Is it a bit of both? That's it's usually the case that it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, John, do, do you want to give your take on this first? um where, wherever yeah. you've ended up after after your hours of thinking so <clears throat> we got a lot of feedback on this uh clearly um you know the twins <laughs> fans on twitter uh i think liked the fact that we said yeah the twins got a haul here then and you know um because at first they were like what we gave up the batting champ um but look let's start with the pieces um pablo lopez we had at 38 
And this is based on the fact that starting pitching market has been very hot. So all of these things, you know, have a connection to the free agent market in terms of dollars per war, right? So the prices that are being paid for good, you know, even okay for, you know, uh, starting pitchers have been very high. So I felt strongly that we were in the ballpark on Pablo Lopez's value. Now, a lot of people said, well, did you know he had a lot of injury risk and shoulder issues? Yes, we know that. And we've adjusted for that. The only thing I can think of if we were too high on is if we underestimated that. Now, we don't know the extent of the shoulder injuries. We're not doctors. We don't see the medicals. We can't, right? That's private. So all we can do is take a best guess at his injury risk. <clears throat> so, you know, you knock 20% off of what would have been his normal field value. And keep in mind, he's only 26 or so. You know, he's still reasonably young and healthy. Like, you don't want to knock off too much if you can't. Like, if he were 35, I would see you knock off more. But not not at that age. But again, we don't know his injury risk. So it could be lower because of, you know, his medicals that teams see and we can't. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the other pieces, um, Salas, um, we got the news that Baseball America had downgraded him a little bit. You know, literally, like, right right after this trade was announced like oh crap so and you know we're not going to take any any you know <clears throat> but we'll do a post-mortem on that later but but he's probably more like 13 instead of 20 based on their downgrade um <clears throat> and then uh chorio is a throw and he might be around one but he's basically a throw in so so we could we could have overestimated uh, lopez based on health concerns so if you knocked him down a little bit you knock salas down a little bit then it becomes more into range on the arias side um you know we'd also noticed that guys with no defensive value um you know there's a long sort of history of that have not been getting paid in the market and not been valued too highly arias can't play second base he's got bad knees now he is a great contact hitter and it, clearly the marlins were looking for offense clearly they had a plan to deal from their surplus of pitching to get more offense and this is probably the only i think they saw this as one of the only guys available to do so so i think that's why they had to overpay um arias as i was saying great contact hitter not a whole lot of power no defensive value bad knees uh can't run <laughs> you know all you're really getting is a really good singles hitter you're getting you know tony gwynn light um now you're getting him for three years but he's also the kind of guy who's gonna be rewarded in arbitration so that's why the surplus number was down because he has such a high batting average arbitrators like that so he gets paid more which means the surplus is not as high so long story short i do think that was an overpay by miami uh, i will note that they had uh, earlier in the week traded uh with the dodgers for jacob amaya and another young shortstop so that maybe they thought okay salas was expendable so they looked at it from that point of view and said okay well you know we already got uh you know, Amaya in so we can give give up Salas. Now, last point I would make is the Twins, as I tweeted about yesterday, uh, we've noticed a pattern where they're getting a lot of teams to overpay for their guys, whether it was uh, this one, whether it was Sonny Gray for uh, Chase Petty, the Barrios package at the deadline a year and a half ago. Um, you know, there's a history of them overpaying um, lately, and I think that speaks well of the twins front office those guys drive a hard bargain and uh it's clearly showing Urshela and donaldson was another one um nelson cruz two months of nelson cruz for six years of joe ryan you know I, there's a few more examples but there's a lot of sort of evidence that the twin front office is driving a hard bargain so long story short um i'm i'm confident that it was 
an overpay by Miami that the Twins drove for an overpay, uh, but it probably wasn't as big an overpay as our model would suggest at the, at the time. Yeah, I think that's all. Those are all really fair points. I want to clarify your last one there about the Twins kind of, I don't want to say forcing overpays, but holding out for a good deal, essentially. Yeah. Um, that's obviously all at the time. That's removing any sort of hindsight that we have. Because you, you put that tweet out and we got some pushback of, wait, what? Are you guys crazy? I mean, like, look at how bad Austin Martin is now. And like, yeah, he, his stock has crashed. So has Jose Barrios's. And so has Simeon Woods Richardson. <laughs> all, all three pieces of that all trade have kind of tanked to this point. Yeah. But what we're talking about is at the time of the trade, which is what matters. Obviously, people like to look back and see who won the trade, who lost the trade, right? Mm -hmm. But for our purposes, it's does this look like a fair deal at the time? Because that's what teams are evaluating when they decide to make this trade or not, right? They don't they don't get to go back in time and, and undo anything. They so what we're I'm, I'm not explaining this well. <laughs> um, what we're getting at there is at the time of the trade, did it look lopsided according to the model? And for a lot of these for the twins lately at the time, yes, it did. And now the fact that some of them went from looking lopsided to two years later, not looking lopsided. Part of that's just variance. Part of that's development. Prospect development isn't linear, things like that. Part of it could be, you know, maybe the model was a little bit off in the first place and that's why it looked so egregious at the time but then as we got more data these players performed more things kind of evened out a little bit but i think there's enough of a trend here that you're right that they are a team that consistently gets the most out of their trades and they have to this point benefited from it you know i that that barrios one is the big one and obviously all three players have tanked from that but even one like the sunny gray trade we got some pushback saying hey chase petty looks really good well, so does Gray. <laughs> I mean, he missed yeah. some time last year, but he was a really solid pitcher for them, and he's a big part of their plans going forward still. And Joe Ryan, like you mentioned, he's really awesome, underrated young pitcher, and they got him for two months of a 48-year-old, I think, a 54-year-old, something like that, <laughs> Nelson Cruz. Um, he's on Social Security now, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so they're doing well, even if, you know – when, when you when you made that point, when you made that tweet, we're not looking at who won the trade, looking at things right now and how the value lines up. We're saying that at the time, they made favorable trades for themselves, and that's how you get yourself in a good position to succeed. Um, I do want to talk more about the individual players in this one as well. So Luis Arias, I love him. I've loved him since he came into the league. Um, I actually had the realization last night while I was driving and, and thinking about baseball that my three quote-unquote favorite teams, I am I grew up an A's fan, and I'm living out here in Arizona, so I'm a D-backs fan, and my old roommate was a Twins fan, so I've kind of adopted them as well. My three favorite teams each traded my favorite player on the team this offseason, <laughs> Sean Murphy, Dalton Varsho, Luis Arias. Um, but Arias, he had a fantastic 2022 season. He was an all-star, but I don't know how you look at this line and see any room for him to get better. So he, he's obviously a fantastic contact hitter. He walked more than he struck out last season, a career-low 7.1% K rate. He even found his way to eight homers, which is by far a career high. And all in all, a productive player, 131 WRC+. But I just don't see any room for growth here. Like you mentioned, he's not a power hitter, and I don't think that's going to change. 
he's not defensively gifted at any position. They were the Twins had him penciled in at first base, and he's what five ten something like that. That's that's not your prototypical first baseman, and they reportedly had some concerns about that as well. Um, and, and he's always had health issues throughout his career. Last season, he played 144 games. You can't necessarily project him for many more than that. So, what we're seeing, what we're seeing, is a player where I think 2022 could could have been his peak. I don't know how you improve on that much other than just you know 20 points of Babbitt luck and he hits 340. And obviously, if he does that, then cool, he's he's more of like a four and a half win player probably. But I don't see any other area of his game that is currently lacking that really has room to grow unless he does just somehow develop into a, an average or better first base defender or a, or a quality left fielder or something like that. Um, but it's a limited profile. I don't see room for growth here. Lopez on the other hand, and this is maybe a little bit more subjective, but just looking at him, he looks like the type of pick, pitcher that could just take off. And he's he's just been quietly very good the last few years. 2021, he missed some time, but in his 20 starts, he was really, really good. He This this feels like, when I look at his Fangraphs page, it feels like I'm looking at pre-Padres Joe Musgrove. Like, that's the that's the comp that I'm getting of just, like, this guy that was kind of regarded as a mid-rotation yeah. arm. Yeah. But could be, whether it's one tweak or whether it's just playing on a better team or just getting a little bit more attention, getting some luck, whatever, could just be that one small adjustment away from maybe not being an ace, but being like a really solid number two. And so I think part of that's kind of baked into his value as well, that he's just really good and people don't necessarily give him credit for it, partially because he's been stuck behind Sandy Alcantara in the Marlins rotation and Alcantara is just on another level. But I think he's really good, and I think people are maybe sleeping on that a bit. So, kind of, kind of my conclusion with this trade, and it's something you started to allude to there, was if if the Marlins wanted contact, and they made it pretty clear early in the offseason they were going to prioritize contact hitters. Their top free agent targets that they ended up missing out on: Jose Abreu, Justin Turner, Brandon Drury. Those are all right-handed hitting power bats, but also ones with lower than average strikeout rates, especially Abreu. He kind of came around this past season and traded some power for cutting down on his strikeouts. And so maybe that made him more appealing to the Marlins, but they pretty clearly identified that as a priority this off season. Ended up getting Gene Segura, who's obviously going to help them in that regard as well, but he wasn't their top target necessarily. And when you look at the trade market, and you know that it's the Marlins. They're not going to be able to buy all the hitters they need. They're going to need to pivot to the trade market. They're going to need to move some arms and add a bat that way. When you look at the trade market, there really isn't anyone out there that fits that profile that they're looking for other than Arias. There's Stephen Kwan. He's not available. And after that, it's just, it's not the same. <laughs> you know, Kwan and Arias are kind of the only guys out there that play this brand of baseball. This, like you said, Tony Gwynn or, or Rod Carew or whatever you want to look at it as, this scrappier contact every at bat is an absolute battle um and so if you've identified that's the guy you want that type of player and arias is the only one of that type of player who's available for you then maybe you don't look as much about lining up the trade and maybe you just say hey we're willing to move this guy here's a couple other guys we'd be willing to move give us an offer that works for you kind of a thing not not necessarily haggling over I'm I'm ten million dollars. I'm fifteen million dollars off on value here, and instead just saying, "Hey, we got our guy," 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I but I do think from a negotiating standpoint that puts you at a disadvantage, right? Because the Twins absolutely. knew they wanted that guy, right? So they played played that well. You know, they played hardball there. Um, yeah, uh, my my kind of conclusion here was that I'm not saying that the Marlins made a rational move. I'm not saying I would support yeah. their making this move, but after some more thought, I can at least explain it logically. I can put myself into a frame of mind where it might make sense. Yeah. And, and I can get there as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, you know, if, if the Marlins ownership in the front office isn't going to sweat the loss of Salas, which is kind of the big differentiator here, if you, you know, if you, if you sort of put, put Arias and Lopez as sort, you know, if you make them even out like a little bit more closely than we had them at first, you're still doing an overpay, but then again, you know, you just got a Maya to be your, you know, your next infielder. So maybe you're okay. And Salas was a teenager, so he's a little farther away. But, you know, I, I think there's another thing going on with the Marlins, which is that they've been kind of stuck in a rut for a long time. I know they had a little blip in 2020, but the perception is they've been a losing team for a long time. And I think they're trying to just generate some buzz. They're trying to get fans back in the stadium. They're trying to say, maybe if we do a little bit, get a little bit of offense, you know, we can get somewhere, maybe a long shot to a wild card. They're just trying a little bit, you know. Um, you know, they've got Sandy. They've got Jazz. You know, they've got some stars. And, and so now they need, you know, another guy to kind of, you know, set the table. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's something like that, you know, um, where we've seen like the Rockies do that too, just to get fans back in the seats. I think the Marlins may be motivated to do something like that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. It does also, and we don't need to get too deep into this. It's a bit out of our scope, but wow, does it make a weird roster in Miami? <laughs> it's yeah, the whole 12 second baseman on the roster thing. And, and we're going to see how that works because we know second base is the most defensively talented position on the field. And they're notorious for being able to play other positions. Well, right. Right. Oh right? my God. Yes. No, I was laughing about this because my 12 year old son's really now following it very closely and into it. So you got, he's like, okay, you got Segura at third, Wendell at short, Arias at second, and you're putting jazz in center field. Like all these guys are out of position, right? And you're, you're okay. <laughs> and I, I don't know. <laughs> independently, I think each of these guys could handle that spot. You know, if if you put one of these guys on the Dodgers, you know, let's say the Dodgers traded for Jazz Chisholm and said they were going to play him in center. I don't think you'd really bat too much of an eye, right? You'd be like, okay, well, they know what they're doing. I think they can they can make him work out there. And we've seen the Dodgers do this and, and play guys out of position, and it works very well for them a lot of the time. But I think when you do all of this at once, plus when you're the Marlins and you haven't exactly yeah. earned that confidence from anyone, I, I think it – and when Sandy Alcantara is more of a contact guy, right? I mean, he's not he's not a pure ground balls and smoke and mirrors type, but he's definitely more of a contact-oriented pitcher. And he's going to be in front of this defense now? Like, yeah. <laughs> I think Wendell can fake it at shortstop. I like Joey Wendell. But can he fake it at shortstop with Luis, Luis Arias and Gene Segura on either side of him? Yeah. I'm not so sure. Yeah. That's this might great. be interesting. Yeah. Hey, um, hey, I mean, the the no defense, just vibes thing worked for the Phillies last year. Maybe that's what the Marlins are going for. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, all right. Um, Just two other quick notes on this um lopez and arias lopez has two years of team control remaining arias has three but as you mentioned arias figures to get paid fairly well in arbitration through those three years because of his batting average and, and a couple of the other more traditional stats that he excels in um 
and Lopez is just a year older than Arias, so they're essentially on the same track. They'll, they'll hit free agency about the same age, but um, Lopez has two years of control and Arias has three. Right. Just wanted to throw that in there. Um, is there anything else you want to do on this trade before we move on to the next one? Uh, no. I just want to say, you know, personally, you know, I wish we had been a little bit closer on that. We know we get feedback. Oh, guy's rough. You know, and then, you know, we've all been off on a couple of them. We know that, you know, every time that happens, we look deeply and say, okay, let's do some postmortem and let's see if we can learn from it. Like, um, we'll talk a little bit later in the show about the reliever model and what we learned from the Soto trade and a few others. Um, so I just, just wanted to sort of mention that, that we don't just like, you know, shrug it off. We actually like look deeply and see if we can fix something. If we, if we're a little bit off, we, we care a lot and, and we're working on it. Yeah, it's it's a tough balance, you know. If you think we were low on Arise, well, okay, maybe you think that's because we dinged him too harshly for the positional adjustment and, you know, being a poor defender at a less valuable defensive position. Okay, if we turn around and change that, then, oh, look, now the Colton Wong trade is out of line because that one was spot on because of that positional adjustment that Wong received that Arise also received. And so things like that where... It's a delicate balance. If we're trying to shift the model to match each individual trade, it's just going to be zigzagging and it's just yeah. going to screw up all the other ones. So we, and it's tougher in an off season like this, where like we mentioned, there were just fewer significant trades to kind of gauge. And and you know, especially when they follow these kind of trends, where the twins typically get a better return out of their trades, and the last few A's trades they've done the opposite. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, are these are these two big misses quote unquote for the model are they indicative of a problem with the model or is it just that two of the biggest trades were involving a team that has consistently been getting less than usual value and a team that has consistently been getting more than usual value yeah exactly so we have to sort of you know model to the market to the middle of the bell curve but we know individual team circumstances will vary greatly and so you know we can't model for the outliers and and oh by the way don't forget <clears throat> the A's brave side of that Murphy trade was fine. It was very close. It was the A's then flipping Contreras to Milwaukee that was off because the A's model differently. So, you know, um, we don't have enough volume to your point um, to say, oh yeah, here's a bunch of winners. Um, to, you know, so, but, you know, I don't feel in my gut that the model is off because we're also checking everything against free agent prices. You know, one of the things we did was we recalibrated basically up because free agent prices went up. And so we have to kind of be in lockstep with that. Um, so I think we're there. And I think with more volume, you'll see see more accuracy as well. I agree. And kind of the last point I want to make is there there have been times where, and I don't, I don't want this to be interpreted as us, you know, having our cake and eating it too or anything. But there's been times, you know, thinking of the Nolan Arenado trade where, a trade comes through, everyone's blasting it for one team, and then our numbers say, no, it actually kind of looks fair. And so there's been some of those moments and some of those trades over the years. But then this, this offseason, when you look at this Arise trade, it seems like the general baseball consensus is, wow, the Twins did really well here. I can't believe they got that yeah. much for Arise. I can't believe they got Lopez and Prospects. And that yeah. lines up with the, what the model says. 
Yeah, and, and that's you look a... back at the Murphy trade, it was the same deal, right? It's, yeah, it's people yeah. saying like, okay, maybe the Braves make sense. They gave up Contreras in a few pieces and got Murphy. That side of it makes sense. But wow, what are the A's doing? Why didn't they just take Contreras? Why did they swap yeah. him for just Ruiz? Right. Like that was the consensus. So at some point, you know, obviously we're not always going to be in line with, you know, the general populist consensus because the general public isn't always in tune with trade values. But sometimes it's kind of indicative that, Maybe it, maybe if it sounds like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Is that the saying? You <laughs> yeah. Know, maybe yeah, if, yeah. It, if it sounds like an overpay by one team and it looks like it on the numbers, and maybe it's just an overpay. Yeah, and Ben Clemens wrote a good piece in Fangraphs yesterday saying, "Yeah, <laughs> the, the Twins got the better of this deal. They won the trade." And you know, so and I've seen others as well. So, you know, we're directionally on. I think is your point, and uh, it it all comes out in the wash. So, okay. Yep. Okay. Let's move on to some of the smaller ones. Uh, sticking with the Marlins, though, we don't have to go too deep on this because you did mention it a few times. They did trade their previous shortstop, one who, you know, could actually play the position capably, uh, Miguel Rojas. They traded him to the Dodgers. We had him at 4.9 million. And in exchange, they received Jacob Amaya at 7.0. This one was accepted by the model as a minor overpay by Los Angeles. Um, that made some sense to me at the time that it would be a minor overpay, given that the shortstop market was pretty depleted and the Dodgers were looking at Rojas or signing Jose Iglesias or Elvis Andrews. And that's kind of it from as far as the options go for them to replace Trey Turner. Yep. Um, but Rojas gives them, I, I hate to say this, but he gives them veteran presence. <laughs> he, <laughs> uh, he's a nice backup. Uh, he, he's either going to start there or be a really nice backup for Gavin Lux. If Gavin Lux shows that he can handle the position. Um, so he's a good fit for them and, you know, maybe at, maybe at a certain point, it's just not worth haggling over a few million in value. Right. Yeah. Where Amaya, if he's a guy, the, the, uh, Marlins really like, and he's a guy, the Dodgers just don't have in their plans. Just go ahead and do it. Then we get, get your guy, get Rojas. If you think he's better than whatever you're going to have to pay Elvis Andrews, then just, just say yes to the deal. And, and you're not going to lose any sleep over trading yeah. Jacob Amaya. No, that's true. And the Dodgers have such a strong farm and such a strong development system that they're not going to, they can afford to part with any kind of a mid-tier prospect. So, yeah. And they're so good at identifying which prospects to keep and which ones to trade that it's, it's very possible that their internal number on Amaya is lower than our 7 million. That that's, I'd say it's pretty likely even. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So not much, not, not much to say about this one. I think it's pretty simple. And, uh, you know, from the Marlins perspective, Rojas had only one year of control left. And, you know, they have been saying they, you know, are looking at longer term control pieces, more sustainability. And so they basically flipped a guy who's expiring for a guy who's kind of on the rise. Yeah. And in my tweet breakdown of this trade, I did mention that the Marlins viewed Rojas as a team leader and a fan favorite. And so they'd only take a deal they were really happy to make. I got a little bit of pushback on that. Apparently he's a. Uh, not a unanimous fan favorite. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit of friction there with the fan base at times, but he, I know for sure he's a team leader. We, we heard a lot about that in 2020 with the Marlins COVID issues and then somehow still clawing their way to the playoffs. We heard a lot about Miguel Rojas and how big of a voice he has in that clubhouse. So maybe they were considering some of those intangibles a bit in the deal and said, Hey, uh, we, we like Amaya and we're not going to take anything less. Yep. All right. Uh, from there, it's really just some, minor ones so i'll just list these off uh the mariners acquired justin topa right-handed reliever 
from the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, we had Topa at zero. In exchange, they sent right-handed uh, relief prospect Jose Hernand or Joseph Hernandez uh, to the Brewers, who we had at point one. So that one was fair. Uh, the Giants acquired left-handed pitcher Eric Miller at 1.0 in exchange for right-handed pitcher Junior Marte going to the Phillies. Uh, Miller was a Rule 5 eligible guy, I'm pretty sure, who didn't get picked, or was he protected? Um, mm. Let me look this up. I do remember seeing his name when I was looking at their roster sheet. Da, da, da. We'll do it on air. <laughs> um, yeah, so he he's not on the 40-man. So he was unprotected for the Rule 5 and was not selected. Right. Uh, lefty relief type. One of those control but no command, or no, not, not sorry, stuff but no command <laughs> types. Um, so a bit of a project for the Giants to take on in exchange. The Phillies add some more velocity to their bullpen in Marte, kind of more of a depth arm though. Yeah. Um, the Blue Jays acquired Zach Thompson, right-handed pitcher that the Pirates DFA'd. We had him at one. In exchange, the Blue Jays traded uh, outfielder Chavez Young to the Pirates. Uh, the Twins acquired. Is that the Twins? Uh, yes, it was the Twins. Acquired right-handed pitcher AJ Alexi at 0.0 in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Christian Jimenez from the Nationals at 0.1, or, or going to the Nationals, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the only other ones were a couple minor cash deals. Uh, Darwins and Hernandez to the Red Sox for cash. We had Hernandez at 0. And Connor Siebold to the Rockies uh, for cash. We had, or, or a player to be named later, and we had Siebold at 0.2. So... Anything from that roster shuffle bunch that stands out to you? Any of those guys you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Darwin's and Hernandez was once a prospect, but he just couldn't find the plate, and sadly they gave up on him. Um, Orioles are taking a shot. Maybe they can fix him. Uh, Connor Siebold had a little bit of buzz like two years ago. I He always kind of showed up as kind of at the bottom of prospect lists that we follow, though. So it might have just been Red Sox fans getting overexcited about him, but he never really amounted to much and was very disappointing uh, as he went up the ranks. So not surprised that he finally gave that they finally gave up on him. Uh, Justin Topa, the guy that got um, traded from the Brewers to the Mariners, um, he's been injured a lot. Um, he's been, uh, you know, one of these relievers is like, if only he could stay healthy, I think he throws you know, high 90s or so, maybe 100, you know, but again, has control problems and an injury problem. So, yeah, Mariners taking a shot. I don't know. All of these are just like, let's take a shot on this guy, see if we can fix him. That's pretty much it. Yeah, and I saw a good tweet from previous podcast guest, John Becker, uh, that was explaining that there's been a lot of, you know, fringe free agent signings the last handful of days. That's the point of the offseason we're at. And a lot of these teams have full 40-man rosters until we get to spring training and they can move their injured guys onto the 60-day injured list and uh, open up roster spaces that way. So in the coming days, we're going to see players added to rosters, some of these fringier free agents that sign these, you know, shorter, one smaller one-year deals. I see them added to rosters. Players need to get cut for them, but other teams aren't really going to have room for these guys. So we're going to see a little bit less movement probably over the next couple weeks until we get to spring training. And then rosters can open up a little bit and we might see a little bit more movement from that point. Exactly. Okay. Um, So that's all in terms of trades. We do have some other transactions to discuss though. And one big one that we've been following for a few weeks now, it finally came to fruition. Uh, Carlos Correa. So 
I don't think we need to get too in-depth on all of the ups and downs of this. We kind of covered them throughout our previous podcast episodes. Uh, But he ended up back with the Twins. Good for him. (laughs) He gets a six-year, $200 million contract. There's four additional vesting options that can take it up to $270 million uh, total if they are all reached. Um, it's, it's front loaded. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's a front loaded deal. So it's kind of like we've talked about in the past where the majority of a player's value happens up front, um, and kind of peters out as as you go through the contract. And this contract structure is actually going to match that fairly well. Um, but yeah, it, Correa is a tough one to gauge because obviously two teams, balked at signing him due to his ankle due to his uh his surgically repaired or or the metal plate or whatever it was in his leg um two teams completely backed out and i don't want to say completely backed out they were both reportedly still trying to restructure a deal with him but it was much lower than this one ended up being and so he ended up going back to the twins here um so it's it's tough to gauge exactly what we should do (laughs) with that injury right um but at least on the numbers here, he's at we have him at seven million in surplus, which is effectively even, right? Over a six-year high-value deal, it's kind of a rounding error at that point. Um, calling this basically a fair deal for him, and and like I said, there's there's a big asterisk there that you've mentioned already that we don't know the medicals, we haven't seen the medicals, we're not doctors, we don't really know exactly how to evaluate that. But it's obviously not good that two teams backed out on him already. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, what what else do you have to say about Correa? So you know, he signed for 200. We have his fair value at 199. The only reason we're showing 192 is because 8 million of that is an upfront signing bonus. And so we have to subtract that because you can't, if in it, we're working in a trade value scenario here. You know, not that he's going to get traded, but if he were, hypothetically, you know, that 8 million would not be part of it. So that's why it's showing a surplus of seven of 199 to 192, but in in actuality, 199 to 200 is very close. The second thing I would say is, um, you know, the previous deals were also sort of close uh, because they flattened out the um, the AAV. Um, So each time we we crunched the numbers, we were more or less sort of, yeah, that's in the ballpark. Um, Now there's a third sort of thing I would mention, which is, you know, before the uh, off season started, you know, I was doing some playing around um, on a side project and crunching some numbers. And of the big four shortstops, I felt like Correa was the most risky in terms of injury, just based on what we could see. He's been injured at back injuries. He's had other sort of missed time here and there. And I thought that that was going to be a red flag, uh, which is why I thought he was going to get a shorter deal. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Now, I'm not a medical expert. None of this news about the ankle or whatever surfaced until later so i can't complain i can't claim any 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 precognition or whatever there um just saying that he had some injury risk so in a way i'm not surprised that you know he went through this roller coaster ended up with a shorter length deal yeah and i think he's in a spot where he's happy and the team is happy to have him and there were some avenues throughout this process where you could see that not necessarily happening you know they're you could you could imagine some tension if there was a after all of this roller coaster he ended up just taking less money or less guaranteed money or something with the Mets like I don't know it seems like he's in a place that's going to be good for him and it seems like the Twins 
theoretically know as much about his medicals as anyone, right? Since they're yeah. the only team that got to do a full physical on him um, prior to signing their deal with him uh, prior to last year. And so they have the full medical picture and they've had it this whole time. And they've been interested in him this whole time, right? So right. that tells you what they think. And I think there was a report that the Mets and the Giants both talked to the same doctor. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. And so I don't like, like all we can do is speculate on any of this, right? As we've said multiple times, we're not doctors. We don't know what's going on here, but I think there's a way you can convince yourself. The twins got a steal here. I think there's also a way you can fairly easily convince yourself that, wow, this is dangerous territory. The giants and the Mets are two very smart baseball teams and they both passed. And now the twins are committing all this money and they're not, known as a financial powerhouse like those two teams that could afford it if this goes south for them. So two key differences here. One is both the Giants and Mets, um, those initial sort of contract terms were long-term deal with 12 years-ish, right? Um, and, you know, he's still fairly young. He's still in his 20s, Correa is. So um, chances are, based on what we've heard about the injury risk, it it's the kind of thing where he can probably play on it as he has been, in his 20s, you know, uh, while he's kind of in his peak, in his prime. And then it would probably start to bug him more and more in his 30s. So as the contract length wore on, that's where most of the risk is. So you could argue that the twins said, okay, we'll just focus on six-year guarantee. If it turns out he's well after that, then we we, tack, we have the option to tack on those other years as well. Um, and so they played it really smartly, I thought, by just basically saying, you know, we're reasonably confident – he can be healthy and productive in the six-year time frame that we're looking at because he's still kind of young. Um, the second thing I would point out is um, I've sometimes referred to uh, a newsletter uh, called Under the Knife uh, written by Will Carroll, who's a, an expert journalist on medical issues, and he made a really good point. He said the industry uses um, certain doctors for certain things, and they're always the go-to guy, so Neil or Trache for Tommy John or whatever. And you know, there's this one guy who everyone goes to for ankles, and that's why the Mets and the Giants went to him because you know they could say, okay, we're going to a different guy, but that's not the way the industry works according to Will. It's like, no, everyone knows you got to go to that guy, and he's like the oracle. <laughs> so like that's what they did, and so that's why there was no sort of difference in perspective there. This is a dumb, tangentially related question. Do you know what happened to Dr. James Andrews? Have you heard anything about Dr. I think James he's still Andrews? getting business. Yeah, no, he was the guy for a while, right? No, yeah. I think he's still getting getting a lot of baseball business. It's just that, you know, he couldn't handle all the volumes. A lot of trash egg kind of became the next hot name in the space, you know? I don't know. It, all it, doctors have but whatever. <laughs> it's like almost reminiscent of Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan, right? Or Rosenthal was the yeah. industry leader and just had every scoop for a while and Passon was kind of the up-and-comer and, -comer and he'd get one every now and then and then all of a sudden they're kind of on equal footing now and they're each mm -hmm. breaking things in lockstep with each other. I don't know. I, I just – you, you yeah. mentioned that and I know I've been seeing Ella Trash. Is, is that his name? I, I, I know I've been seeing – Trash. Ella Trashe, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I've been seeing his name pop up more and more often and it's just triggered that memory in my mind of always seeing – so-and-so's Tommy John surgery was performed by Dr. James Andrews. I think I've seen about four different four tweets at different points in my life that said Jared Parker's <laughs> elbow surgery was performed by Dr. James Andrews. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they become the go-to guys for the industry, right? And it's a small industry, so everybody knows 
those are the go-to guys, right? So my point is, for the ankle, it was this guy. And that's what they did. Yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to derail that. I just... <laughs> intrusive thought. That's okay. Um, but yeah, as, as far as those vesting options go, it's reminiscent of the Julio Rodriguez extension. And I think this is just kind of a trend that we're seeing um, increasing in, in recent years where it's not necessarily making these contracts non-guaranteed obviously Correa, no matter what happens he's getting this 200 million dollar guarantee and that's wildly different from any kind of contract structure we see in the nfl or or anywhere else but the second half of this contract is very much if he performs he gets the money and that's kind of a trend we're seeing it we used to see you know like hey they get a million dollar bonus if they're the mvp big whoop but now Julio Rodriguez has two entirely different contract structures based on how well he plays. Correa, if he gets 575 plate appearances, boom, his 2029 option vests. And then 550 to get the next one, 525 to get the next one, 502 to get the last one. Or if he finishes top five in MVP, wins a silver slugger, or wins the LCS or World Series MVP, then that next season vests. And so that's interesting. It's kind of a built-in... You know, it's a built-in system of if this guy is going to be worth the money, he's going to make it. And in this case, I think it's, I don't know if it's quite, uh, if it is quite fair value just with how the contract is structured. The vesting options go 25, 20, 15, and 10. And obviously by the time we get to that last one, we're talking about what, 36-year-old Carlos Correa, 37, 38. Um, but if, if we're saying in 2031 that, Carlos Correa is finishing top five in the MVP. He's probably going to be worth a lot more than $10 million in 2032. Again, this is 10 years from now, and he's going to be old by then. But what what I'm getting at here is it's an interesting change in contract structure that we've been yeah. seeing more and more recently where players kind of have to earn the back half of that deal. They have to prove that they're going to be worth it, and then the team says, sure, here's the money. Yeah, this is an interesting case to kind of set that mark, right? And because of the injury concerns, you know, in other cases, it was just plain old, hey, you're getting older and slower or whatever, you know, so like they may not have built that in and they were all just flat, you know, Joey Votto and, you know, maybe Miguel Cabrera, they're just, you know, earning $32 million or whatever it is until they're 40. And and so now I think the game is probably starting to, I'm gonna, you're going to see more of those, basically. I agree with you. What would Albert Pujols' contract look like if he were to sign it today? You know, if he were <laughs> if he were hitting free agency as a thirty year old or whatever he was at the time, oh, and signing a contract today, wouldn't it wouldn't it be like this? And and how would that change his career? He would have been. I feel he like he would have been out of baseball way earlier. But he was still well in his prime at age thirty, I think. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, I, I'm he saying this sort of back half of the deal but has to. Like yeah. Yeah, but I mean this this sort of back half of the deal structure where you have to earn it with playing time, right? Let's yeah. say. It, 30-year-old Albert Pujols gets this similar contract where the first six years are guaranteed, but then he yeah. has to hit these plate appearance marks or MVP finishes or whatever. We yeah. saw how he was with the Angels. He wasn't. He was playing maybe 300 plate appearances a year toward the second half of that deal. He would have not vested the contract, been a free agent, and who knows if we get this magical season that we just had with the Cardinals. Who knows if he's just out of baseball before then. 
Just another I, yeah. intrusive off-topic thought. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I could see it becoming more of a thing with pitchers uh, because pitchers are riskier, especially as they get older into their 30s. I know we have a few exceptions with Verlander and Scherzer, but, the, you know, the average sort of Chris Bassett types, you know, uh, or maybe that's not a good example, but, you know, a good pitcher in his 30s, um, you know, coming up in the next couple of years – yeah, maybe they start to build in the back end. Maybe that gets negotiated a little bit more, something like this structure. We did get something similar to this already, and pulling up the specifics on it, but Jacob deGrom's contract had some something along these lines, right? Am I am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah, but it, it's still a very, details. very high guarantee, though. Over, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there is kind of a built-in at the end there if if he pitches, he gets his money kind of deal. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. So it's, it's inching that way. I think we're going to see more like spelled out like Correa says. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Um, just sticking with the twins for one last note. Uh, this is of much lower magnitude than the others, uh, but they signed Chris Baddock to an extension. Uh, he's still rehabbing from Tommy John was probably ticketed to come back about halfway through this year. Um, and he's going to get his final two years of arbitration as well as one free agent season bought out. Uh, it'll be $2.5 million this year, $2.525 million next year, and then $7.5 million in 2025. Um, Paddock's an interesting one. Never really know what to make of him, but it, it, this shows something. The Twins have a, a smart front office, and they're committing to him. You know, this isn't a massive commitment by any means. It comes out to, what, $12.5 million total? So it's not no co massive commitment or anything, but it, it shows that they believe in him. And that's and obviously they showed that by trading for him in the first yeah. place. But it shows that even after this injury that knocks him out a year and you don't know exactly how he's going to come back, that they believe. And I guess it's a little bit reminiscent to a much lower magnitude, but the, the Tyler Glass now extension, mm -hmm. where with that one we discussed that, yeah, he was only going to have this one season coming back from Tommy John, and then he was going to hit free agency. And that's not ideal, because we've discussed a lot about how that first year back is kind of a work in progress. You know, you're kind of getting your footing, building up your arm strength again. And then the following season, so two years removed from surgery, is when you're kind of more back to normal. Yeah. And so Paddock would have been following a similar timeline to that and then hitting free agency. Uh, but this gives him kind of another chance to... Uh, have a guaranteed year. Uh, on the one hand, if he falls apart, boom, he just locked in $12 million. On the other hand, if he comes back and kind of takes the step forward and turns into the guy that he was early in his career again, he gets that extra platform year to really prove it before he hits free agency as a 30-year-old. Yeah, and the way they've structured the contract kind of uh, tells that story as well. He's only getting two two and a half million while he rehabs in 2023. And then again, two and a half million in 2024 which to your point is kind of like his, his, you know, first full year back and where he shakes off the rust and maybe isn't quite totally there yet. And then assuming all, all goes well, he gets seven and a half million in 2025 when presumably he's back, you know, and, and thriving as his old self. Um, so I think the way they structured that makes perfect sense. Um, and they also, you know, as with any extension, it's kind of a compromise, right? The player gives up a little upside for more security between uh, in twins in this case the team um gives up some money but not so much as if, as if it was a free agent contract it's not retail it's wholesale so they've got some built-in sort of protection surplus in there so it's kind of a win-win for everybody and it's such a small-ish short-term contract that it's not a big deal 
and the way it's structured, it's not a big hit for them financially this year either. So I, I think it makes sense. The last thing I would say is, you know, I've noticed a little bit of a pattern of of uh, teams kind of buying upside. Like, you remember Paddock when he first came on the scene? It was like a sensation when he was with uh, the Padres. He was the cowboy hat, and there was a whole lot of media attention around him, and he was pitching really well. And then he struggled a little bit after that. But I think what the Twins are saying is, we want that guy, you know, that that – that first came on the scene that was you know really great because it shows that they can do that it shows that there there is the potential to do that and i think that's what they're buying here yeah it's why shelby miller keeps hopping around the league yeah because right? right. such a strong start to his career <laughs> and if you can even get a fraction of that back then boom yeah. dividends um yeah i i want to mention that it's always seemed like the model kind of likes chris paddock right yep. like yep. Uh, obviously so we had it baked in that He'd be getting about this salary for 2023 because when guys usually when guys miss time like this, they have a very similar uh, contract the following year through arbitration. Uh, but then we were projecting him for a bit of a bump the next year because again he was going to come back and pitch a little bit, and regardless of whether he was good or not, he was guaranteed for or not guaranteed, but he was expected to get at least some sort of a raise in arbitration in that final year before he hit free agency, and then he was projected to hit free agency. Um, but with this contract, instead, he gets essentially the same value for 2023 and 2024. So, okay, his salary just went down a little bit. Plus, adding in that last year where I'm assuming he was projected to be worth more than $7.5 in field value in 2025. Yeah, that's the year that we're on. <laughs> in 2025, that first free agent year. He was projected to earn more or be worth more than $7.5 million in field value, but that's mm -hmm. going to be his contract. Mm -hmm. And so his surplus ticked up a little bit from this mm -hmm. contract. Mm -hmm. uh, it went from 5.5 uh, .5 to 7.7. .7. Yeah. All right. So it's my deal. <sighs> yeah. I think uh, obviously I have a little bit of bias here, and I've already admitted that a couple times this episode, but I think it's time to start counting the Twins as one of these smart teams. They're They're making <laughs> good moves pretty consistently out there, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, I no doubt, no doubt. I've, I've, they've certainly earned my respect over the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, the only other truly notable free agent, um, to even really mention is Trey Mancini. It's been a lot of, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, it's been a lot of these kind of smaller, one-year veteran type deals. You know, we could talk about Brian Anderson or Adam Duvall. Tommy Fan, uh, Fam, AJ yeah. Pollock, Johnny Cueto, Luke Jackson, Andrew McCutcheon's back in Pittsburgh. Good for him. Brett Phillips, Brandon Belts in Toronto. That's going to be weird. Corey <laughs> Dickerson, Nelson Cruz signed a one-year, one million dollar deal with the Padres just because he wanted to be on the Padres. That's fun. <laughs> uh, Luke Weaver, Roldis Chapman is on the Royals. Yikes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Shintaro Fujinami. I don't think I mentioned him. He's interesting at least. The A's are doing some weird things uh, overseas. <laughs> uh, we'll see if it works for them. Low risk deals. Yeah. Um, but Mancini's really the only notable name there. He's the only one getting a multi year deal. He gets two years, fourteen million guaranteed with some other bonus money available and he goes to the cubs um i, I don't think i mentioned that so uh, we have this as a bit of an overpay we have him at negative 2.9 in surplus at this time um and, and theoretically you know if he has bonuses uh, if he has that many bonuses up to seven million dollars available in incentives then uh that could go even further <laughs> depending on what those incentives are that could go even yeah, further but underwater if, if he gets paid all those well. 
if he's yeah. performing well, then his field value goes up, and so it's kind of a wash. Yeah, it's just a case of, hey, is that incentive? I don't think they can... They can't do incentives based off of, like, counting stats, right? But they can for, like, Silver Slug or stuff like that. I guess. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, I don't have many thoughts here other than the Cubs are... I don't... I, I'm having a hard time keeping track of what the Cubs are doing. <laughs> I, they... I, yeah. Go they ahead. sold off their like World Series core and and maybe they did kind of a Royals where they did it like a year too late mm-hmm. and lost out on some value there but I think a year too late uh, from a from a fan perspective a year too late is better than a year early I know Billy Bean would disagree but yeah <laughs> um so they kind of sold that off and had this weird kind of bare bones team and then they signed Seiya Suzuki and Marcus Stroman, and they've hung on to Ian Happ through all of this. Now they have Mancini. They signed Dansby Swanson. Uh, there's definitely a couple other names there I'm I'm forgetting right now that they've added in the last couple years. Um, but they, they have this interesting-ish veteran core of like all these kind of mid-tier guys. Yeah. Like even Swanson was kind of the lowest on the totem pole for the free agent shortstops this offseason. Mm-hmm. And... They have some interesting prospects that are getting close um, and some younger guys behind them. So so the future doesn't look bad in, in Chicago. And maybe it's just a case of, hey, let's spend a little short-term money here. Obviously, Swanson and Suzuki are longer term, but they believe in those guys as being core pieces. But things like this Mancini deal, let's spend some short-term money, see if we can put anything together in these couple years while we wait for the kids. And at worst case scenario, we've put a watchable team on the field with some guys that we can flip for prospects at some point. Best case scenario, we luck into a wild card and transition that into our next core. I guess that's the thinking there. Exactly. That's it, right? So, you know, look, they they want fans in the seats in Wrigley because um, they don't want to be a perpetual loser. So they want to at least try to make an attempt to win. And they haven't really traded off any prospects. In fact, you know, what they did, like they signed David Robertson last year, who turned out to be a really good reliever. And they flipped him for Ben Brown, who looks like a really strong pitching prospect. So, you know, they're doing smart things there. Um, they're holding on to the kids and they're developing. And, and, you know, word has it that, you know, they're developing well, at least. Now, Pete Crow, Armstrong, the top prospect, was in the teens when he was traded. Now he's worth 37 in our model. So he keeps rising, a few others as well. Um, so I think in their signing veterans is, you know, to some degree you can say, yeah, um, maybe Mancini's a placeholder for Matt Mervis or one of the other guys, you know, um, as they get ready. So they're sort of like laying the groundwork for like, you know, let's have it both ways. Let's try to have a representative product. Maybe we'll sneak into a wild card. And then, you know, but you know, while the kids are developing, that's the future core. So it's not always black and white. It's sort of like various shades of gray. <laughs> you know, theirs is a little bit more however you call that you know let's say black is the yeah we're going for its side they're slightly darker gray if that makes any sense yeah and i i definitely <laughs> forgot a few of their notable names here they signed cody bellinger which i think oh right we but talked about that a year. lot yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we talked about that a lot about how it's he we he got more money than we expected by a long shot but yeah. the whole adage no such thing as a bad one-year deal there's all kinds of upside there for sure yeah um they got Tucker Barnhart, which cool, I guess. Uh, they did sign Jameson Tyone for a lot of money. I think we kind of talked down on that one as well. Yeah. Um, but my least favorite move was they, they signed Eric Hosmer. I forgot about that. <laughs> for it's, league minimum. Yeah, I it's mean, just a no league risk. minimum. But it, and they can cut him at any time if it doesn't work out and all that jazz. But 
I was excited to see Matt Mervis, and I know a lot of Cubs fans were. He's not a tip-top prospect by any means, but he really came onto the scene last year. He was crushing it all year, crushed it in the Arizona Fall League, just seems like a guy who hits the ball very far. And Eric Hosmer is not that. So <laughs> I was looking forward to seeing some of that, and I'm sure we'll see him at some point in this coming season. Um, yeah. yeah looking at their at their page on roster resource this isn't a bad team i've seen much worse te- many worse teams than this they they have some interesting things going on here so I, I don't mean to discredit them by any means just that they they haven't taken a traditional rebuild structure and as one of the teams that kind of pioneered the original tank and rebuild structure um maybe they're pioneering something new now maybe it's trying to and i'm not saying this is new as in no other team has done this but uh, they're they seem to be leaning a little bit heavier into this whole spend to keep ourselves afloat while we wait for the kids approach yeah, and yeah we haven't really seen that well it's kind of a trend actually um they're doing it maybe you could argue that's what the marlins are thinking you know um you know the red sox kind of been doing that while they sort of try to redevelop their farm after dombrowski got it They've been trying to rebuild the farm while also competing on the other hand. So, like, there's a few teams you could make the case at kind of, you know, juggling left hand and right hand at the same time. And I think that's what the Cubs are doing. I think what's what sets them apart, though, at least from, like, the Red Sox, is the Red Sox, their payrolls have been falling. And they've been, you know, shuffling pieces around and trying to remain competitive while they wait for Marcelo Mayer <laughs> and Tristan Cassis and Sedan Rafaela and all their other top prospects there. They've been trying to stay competitive while they wait for them, but the Cubs specifically have just been throwing money at guys in this kind of yeah. mid-range of the market. And that's not even, you know, the other team that comes to mind is Texas, but that's yeah. not really the same either. I mean, I guess there's some similar incentives there of let's get some butts in the seats yeah. the, for the Rangers, it being the new stadium, for the Cubs, it being, yeah. you know, Wrigley and just all the tradition and everything. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think I, I... I don't know... I guess that's an interesting question to explore. Which team do you feel better about for the next handful of years, the Rangers or the Cubs? Uh, the Rangers, because I think the Rangers are on a slightly different trajectory. I mean, they've been building the farm, and then they said, okay, we're tired of losing, let's go for it. And they jumped the gun by sign- signing Seager and Semyon last year, and John Gray, and now they've said, okay, now we're really going for it, and let's sign a bunch of really strong starters, led by DeGrom. And they still have some offense, but they also have some kids coming and some guys who just kind of, you know, had a cup of coffee that still need development. So there may be, you know, not every prospect make it, makes it, obviously. But if you figure two or three of those kids is going to make it, com- coupled with, you know, the long-term contracts that they've signed, you know, you start to get something. You start to see the, 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 light, of, the light at the end of the tunnel here for Texas. And I think that's a stronger, more it's a more linear sort of direction as opposed to this maybe we will, maybe we won't kind of thing that the Cubs and Red Sox are doing. That's interesting. I think I might lean more toward the Cubs, actually. And maybe I'm just being a little bit too old-fashioned in my thinking here and being too locked into, hey, this is the way to rebuild. This is what you do. But... And, and I do think in general with this approach, I think it's better to grab a couple stars than it is to just fill out your roster with Jamison Tyones and Marcus Stroman's and Trey Mancini's while you wait for the kids. But I think specifically what sets the Rangers apart and, and makes them kind of different here is I don't think they really have that kind of high caliber of, of prospect that's on the way that you really feel confident about like, yep, this is the next wave, you know. Yeah. Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker have both really tanked in the last 
year or so their their stock has really fallen and so they have they have a solid farm of like kind of these i don't want to say depth guys but kind of these mid-range prospects but they don't really have that blue chipper yeah and I don't think the the Cubs necessarily have a blue chipper either, but they have a lot of guys that look like they could boom into that. They have a lot of these younger guys. And I mean, Brennan Davis is a popular prospect. I know his stock fell a little bit as well, but I don't know. At this point, I'm kind of just rambling. The, the other concern I have with the Rangers is that um, they aren't a team that has historically spent at the top of the market consistently. And... Marcus Semyon is already into his early 30s. DeGrom is in his mid-30s. And there there is an avenue where those two just kind of fall off and, and suddenly you've committed, what, like $50 million a year to the two of them to get not a whole lot of production versus the Cubs. I, I don't see that same... I, I see Dansby Swanson as having a higher floor and they really don't have any other money committed to that level where it could impede the next you know the next good core they have there so i guess that's my only oh well argued can't can't disagree with any of your points um i think there's just two different styles going on here um you know i think their farms are pretty similar i I think you make a great point that the rangers farm is doesn't have a superstar in it you know evan carter and owen white look like future regulars maybe not stars you know throw maybe uh uh, Josh Jung in there as well, so yeah. But you know, some of the I, I think also they know that they didn't. They know Lighter's struggling. They know Rocker's struggling. They don't have a whole lot of the media and light uh, coming, which is why they prioritize pitching on the free agent market this year. Um, the owner, I think, clearly wants to get you know fans back in the seats with the shiny new toy stadium. So they've got to have some attractions. So they're for Degrom, they're for Seager. So I think they've got a plan to like at least make some noise you know <laughs> and we'll see how it turns out through, through a combination of of farm and money and i know the cubs are doing the same they're just slightly different styles yeah i'm going to be keeping an eye on this i, w- I want to see which of these teams make it makes it to the playoffs first and has the yeah. more successful run with this current strategy i'm intrigued yeah. by this now yeah 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 all right um i think that's most of what we had um we did want to briefly mention arbitration uh so so i think we alluded to it a couple times but um most players have agreed to their arbitration contracts for the following year um matt swartz of mlb trade rumors or i guess contributing to mlb trade rumors uh, he has excellent projections every year and this year his were pretty close so not too much movement on any of these guys if you see if you saw values shift in recent weeks that was likely because of this or at least in part because of this um where even if, you know, let's say Matt projected a player to earn $2.5 million and they ended up getting $2.75 million, you might say, okay, that's not, that's, that's not much of a gap at all. You know, we should see the player's value shift by 0.2 or 0.3, given that that's how much their salary adjusted. But you have to remember that the arbitration system builds on itself. Mm-hmm. And so especially for a player who's in their first or second year of arbitration, it can be considered kind of a baseline that the next years are going to be going off of. So yeah, it might just be a 0.25 difference now, but that could very easily snowball into like a few million dollars. So if you, if you saw any numbers shift a little bit more substantially, that's probably why. Yep. That's right. All right. Um, 
uh, I think you wanted to talk about relievers a little bit, John. I remember you yeah. mentioned that before we started. So we talked earlier about how when we're off, you know, we definitely feel it and definitely matters. And so we take a closer look and say, okay, why were we off? Is there something that our model is not doing right? Um, to be honest, we've we felt a little bit that way with relievers in general. Like last year at the, the deadline, we were pretty close, but there were a few that were off. Like I've never quite felt like we were like totally nailing the the reliever side of things because relievers are a different animal. They're very volatile, um, and you know there's you can't just do it on a uh, war basis, for example. It's too simplistic. And if you if you tried to match up, you know, Fangraphs version of F war and maybe Steamer projections against what their contracts are like, you'd be way off. Like clearly, you know, there's more going on here. And so we we have used other stats and we've used other sort of you know you know, inputs into the model to kind of form a cocktail, thinking, okay, and then years pass, like, yeah, we're sort of close. But then you see, like, things like the Soto trade, and you see things like overpays for some relievers, you're like, huh, Robert Suarez got that much, and, you know, uh, Rafael Montero got that much. And so, like, we're following the free agent market and saying, okay, something's not right here. So we put our heads together, and um, credit to, uh, you know, uh, the the guys who we hired uh, this past year, Dan Bannon and Alex Havers, who, who you know, were a big help saying, why don't we try this, why don't we try that? Uh, Dan in particular said, okay, I'm going to take a, take a couple hours and figure this out, and he did. And so then we tested it and um, plugged it in in a few test cases, and it worked much better. And so then we tested it some more, and it worked much better again. And now we're like, okay, <laughs> it seems to be going the right direction. So you you will see then once once that happened, we started to update all of our, all of our reliever models, and 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 we're testing them against the free agent contracts, and they're much closer. Um, so by and large, we feel like you know we I'm not sure we've solved it completely, but we're much closer than we were before. So that feels good. Um, Looking back on things like the Soto trade, it would have been a lot closer. You know, we had him at like 2.2, which we know was too low. He would have been like seven or eight, so that would have helped. It would have still been a bit of an overpay, but but obviously not as much. So, and then there's other, you know, we just saw like Aroldis Chapman, you know, signed for 3.75 in the new model, and he's at 3.7. So we see a lot of sort of validation from the market as well. Uh, so I feel like we're much better off now uh, with the inputs to the and the changes that we made to the reliever model. So look forward to that going going from here. Yeah, and we're always going to be pushing and pulling with the relief model. I feel like that's the one that we're always going to be chasing the next thing on. Right? It's gonna yeah. it's, the relievers have the most volatility, and teams have volatility with what they prioritize in a reliever. The the A's clearly like a different type of reliever than the Phillies do. Just just pulling two teams out. They have prioritized some for better or worse. They prioritized guys who fill up the strike zone and and they were addicted to use Merrill Petit for a few years there with the pop-ups and, and mm -hmm. weak contact and all that and guys who can go out there every other day. And the Phillies are very clearly going velocity velocity velocity. We'll figure out the rest when we get it. We want guys who throw hard. And yeah. so those are obviously a couple extremes, but there's different approaches to it, and it makes sense that there's different approaches to it. These are guys who only need to pitch 50 to 70 innings a year, and there's a lot of different ways to be successful over 50 to 70 innings, and there really isn't just a uniform stat or a group of stats that can fairly and equally evaluate all relievers, both in terms of production and projected future production right there's, yeah. there's a lot that needs to go into this there's a lot of push and pull things continue to change there's 
all kinds of developments within pitching and with with each development on the pitching side i think we see it first in relievers because they can do so in such a short stint and they're usually throwing harder and, and able to kind of maximize some of the gains from these and mm-hmm. we can see them right away whereas it might take us a while to see you know a, a starting pitcher who throws 180 innings a year if he makes some tweak to his fastball that gives it more ride that might be tougher to really tell and identify compared to hey this reliever used to have a four era now it's down to one and a half nothing else really changed what's going on here <laughs> so mm-hmm. right it's always going to be some level of catch up with relievers and luckily i guess luckily <laughs> teams know that they're all volatile anyway and so there's no we're, we're far past the days of getting up a glaber taurus for an Aroldis chapman so even the best of the best relievers are going to kind of have a cap on their value and even if it's not a cap on their value, at least a cap on how much teams are willing to trade for them. You know, I'm thinking of Emmanuel Class A right now, where I think he's one of the more valuable players in the model, to be honest, because he's a dominant reliever, he's young, and he's locked up on a joke of a contract. Yeah, exactly. And so so that's the kind of thing where I, I think he could be a player where, yeah, he's theoretically worth this $70 million or whatever it is in trade value that he's at right now. But I don't no, think teams are seven, lining. But yeah, oh. there's a desk curve. There's a top. Something of, like yeah. that. Right, right, right. And and teams aren't necessarily lining up to pay that number just because even right. if that's what he's theoretically fairly worth, there's a lot of risk there that might not be present with a Brian Reynolds in the same kind of territory right. of trade value. So all that's so, to say, constantly working to improve it. We're we were very clear with every aspect of the model that we're never going to be perfect and we're always just doing our best. And I think relievers are kind of the epitome of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, in years past, we were like, okay, we know they're volatile. Do we try to track the volatility or do we kind of split the difference and kind of hit it down the middle? And we've kind of done it both ways. And long story short, hitting it down the middle seems to be the better strategy than trying to track the volatility because, you know, especially in off-season scenarios where teams are like looking bigger picture rather than I need a reliever now at the deadline. You know, I think there's a little bit more volatility at the deadline. There's a little more stability in the off-season, and I think longer term you got to model for the stability rather than the ups and downs too much. So you got to go the moving averages rather than the bumpy stock market chart. Um, so that's one thing. But you know, they're also kind of a unique animal because they have you got to factor in um, stuff. And that stuff can go away anytime. It could be velocity. It could be Ryan Presley's slider. It could be something that they're, is their calling card or Petit's ability to get pop-ups or whatever. So, like, there's that one thing. With with starters, you know, they got three or four pitches, and they mix it up, and they, they have a more sort of sustainable sort of approach. With relievers, it's like, I'm going to throw you my one pitch, maybe a second one, but that's it. And if that one pitch goes bad, then I'm off. You know, and so there's always uh, that challenge. And then there's the leverage challenge, which means – Okay, who do you trust? Who does your manager trust? You know, to face Bryce Harper in the eighth inning in a one-run game. You know, that matters more than a guy who's coming in in the sixth with nobody on. So, like, you've got to factor all these things in. It's really, it's really not easy, but we think we've gotten closer. Yeah, and just for accuracy's sake, Manuel Classe is at forty-eight point three. Yeah. But as there's a there's a trade with him on it from November seventh. At which point he was at sixty-seven point one. So I knew I had that number coming. No, out yeah, because we had to we had to level set with the S curve as well. Yeah, because you, you're making a good point. Nobody's going to pay seventy million dollars for a reliever, no matter how good, no matter how cheap his contract. Because relievers, we've also done some research where, like, what is the percentage of your payroll 
will you play what do you pay for any given player as well as any given player in a certain position so even edwin diaz is going to cap out at 20 million even though he theoretically may be worth more than that yeah great point okay um I don't have much to add there. We have a few minutes left. Do you want to go into your trade now or trade at the deadline article a little bit? I'll just briefly mention it. So, yeah, I was just sort of curious. You know, I we get this question a lot, and it's kind of an old sort of cliche, like, oh, you can get more from a deadline. And so I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Is that really true? And I just cited a few examples using our numbers and assuming kind of the run rate of what they're expected to do in this coming year. So, you know, if you traded – you know, Brian Reynolds now, would you get more for him than you would at the deadline? And the answer is yeah. And for the most part, you know, the examples I used, the answer was yeah. The only ones were like short-term oriented relievers, um, you know, <clears throat> where they're either a rental or maybe a, a one plus guy where the reliever mark, as we just said, can be volatile and there's always high demand uh, for a good one. Um, so you can maybe get, you know, relatively close to the same value. Um, then you know then if you trade it down but it's it's a wash basically between now and then on a reliever but for the most part for everybody else as you would expect you know it's better to trade them now if you're looking for full value because that value is just going to erode with time over the next four months if you wait to the deadline the salary depending on how much they make how much surplus is baked into the 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 current year you know that um most of that surplus is going to get washed away in time you know, if a lot of it is on the field value side, that's going to get washed away and maybe the salary is, is lower. So you're better off if you're trying to, to maximize value. Generally speaking, you're better off now than later. Absolutely. And obviously that doesn't always happen. Teams don't always trade everyone in the off season and then have nobody left at the deadline to trade. And, and there's a lot of different factors that go into that, but also just kind of to push back on the initial premise of hey we should hang on to him he'll be more valuable at the deadline if that were the case everyone would know that right <laughs> and everyone would nobody would trade anyone in the offseason they'd all hang on till the deadline but it's very clearly not because a you know you're losing half a season of the guy if he has three years of control now well guess what when you trade him at the deadline he only has two and a half or a little bit less yeah and then b there's significant risk that the team that has the player is taking what if he gets hurt in the first couple months you know frankie montas could have gotten the a's a whole lot more last offseason than he did end up getting them at the deadline and that's because he got kind of banged up he lost some uh some some of his uh years of control because yeah half the season was already gone he only has a year and a half left and so his stock fell a little bit and they probably could have gotten more during the offseason for him on the flip side of that, the reason that not everybody gets traded in the offseason is because, well, first of all, there's guys that you are hoping will go the other direction. You know, the A's with Ramon Laureano. They're hoping he regains some value this season because it really just tanked in the last couple years. And then there's teams that, you know, are on the fence that the Brewers aren't trading guys away right now. The White Sox aren't trading guys away right now. But if we get to the deadline and things look a little different, then, yeah, maybe it's it is time to sell some of those guys. So. Yeah, that's kind of the push and pull of it. And then there's also, you know, what if they just, you know, with the Pirates where they just don't see a deal they like for Reynolds right now or with, you know, I guess Jose Ramirez before the, the Guardians extended him. He was a guy that was always a popular trade candidate, but teams just weren't meeting the Guardians asking price. They said, OK, well, hold on, we'll wait until somebody can meet our price or until we can lock him up. So 
lot that goes into it both ways. It's just a, it's one of those silly baseball adages that <laughs> has never made any sense if you thought about it for more than 30 seconds, but baseball yeah. fans are good at not thinking about things for more than 30 seconds. I, you <laughs> that's know, why they still like bunting and things like that, but uh, I, I digress. <laughs> I No, I think, I think human psychology plays a role here because the outliers tend to stand out and imprint on people's memories. Like, Look at the whole Aroldis Chapman got for two years, two months of Aroldis Chapman, and they got Gleyber Torres, and it, you know it's like that's what stands out to people, not the run of the mill trades, all the other hundred trades that you know made more sense, is that one, right? So like, oh, if that's you know you can always get more of the deadline, and I just think it's a, a myth, um, you know, and and there's certain cases like you know look at the article now, so like. You know, the closest one I could find was, you know, a short-term reliever like a Dylan Floro of the Marlins who has one year of control. The surplus now is 2.4. If you went to the deadline, it's 2.2. So basically a wash. And so if you're the Marlins, as we've just talked about, you might as well hold him until the deadline in that case because if you're competing, great, you're using him. And if you're not, you didn't really lose much. So that's fine. Short-term relievers, um, I can see that case. But pretty much everybody else, on paper, it's better to trade now. Now, having said that, you make a great point that the dynamics will shift. You don't know who's going to get injured, who's going to be like a team that's like, oh my God, we're in first place at the deadline, but you know we're right in the thick of it, and we definitely need a center fielder. Like that may change the dynamic as well. So like maybe Brian Reynolds will be worth a little bit more because he can play a passable center fielder, or maybe at least the same amount as he is now. So maybe the Pirates can sort of split the difference in weight. So there's you can't really predict those things. You just have to kind of like make your best guess. But the exercise in paper was all things considered equal. What's it, you know, what's better? And, you know, this tends to show that it's better to trade in the offseason than, than to wait. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's playing a role here is the concentration of trades, right? When it gets to the deadline, there's 50 trades in a week. Yeah. And in the offseason, there might be 75 trades, but it's spread off, spread across four months. And so, it feels like a less busy time and it feels like, Oh, the deadlines when all the big move, the big right. moves happen, all the big names get traded. And that's because the teams know they got to hang on to these guys and get the most they can for them at the deadline. But that's, we know that's not what's happening. Right. There you go. Oh, cool. Um, do you have anything else to add this week? I think that's about all that I have. No, that's about all that I have as well. Um, you know, one more thing is, um, we are making some small value changes to the prospects because we've gotten some more um, source material to work from. So you'll see some of those changes. You know, nothing too major. Most of the major changes have already been done, but you might see some little things here and there. Sweet. Well, I think that'll do it for this week then. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.